Try. Are you still there, Triad? <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, checking my notes. Um, yeah, uh, my first question would be, uh, what's the relationship between uh, a delirium uh, in this case? Because it uh, seems to have some kind of significance in this aspect. Uh, or, or this this part of the text and uh, the socius uh, or a social field. So um, on page 314 in my edition, the Bloomsbury edition, uh, there's uh, the sentence, every delirium is first of all the investment of a field that is social. The delirious person applies a delirium to his family. Um, um, yeah, and that's a false quotation by me. Um, That's that 274 yeah. in my edition, just mentioning. Uh, uh, you're, talking yeah. about the, you're talking about where, where they're talking about uh, the Nicholas Ray film. Uh, mm. Yeah. Uh, so the, to me, and I think uh, you said three different things there, and I know this may be a, a language issue, so I want to make sure we go over them. First, uh, you want, just to restate it, we want to talk about the difference between the socius, the social field, and how delirium applies into that. Yep. Uh, so to me, I look at delirium when they were talking about it earlier, uh, their discussions around it very much focused around uh, sort of a collective fantasy, I believed the is the term they were using. Is that close, Lou? Because I know we mentioned this yesterday. Uh, the, the delirium being this collective fantasy where people accept this sort of uh, collective truth that may or may not be true at all, but is the way things are seen by the sort of people at large. Uh, specifically when they're talking about the Ray film, uh, which uh, for some reason my brain is dying on me right now and I can't think of um, the title of it. Um, the 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 setup and the way that the film is built uh, as they quote uh, the film social will to the shame of psychiatrists is that every delirium is first of all an investment of the field that is social economic political cultural uh, the way that the man who is the father of this family the man who's out earning bread he's out there he's sick he's taking this drug he's the one who's become mentally ill because he's overdosing essentially on steroids uh, and he's becoming angrier about life his first investment the first place he's angry is not actually targeted at the sun. He doesn't begin his day by going, fuck my kid, I hate him. He gets there because he's sick of how the Mexicans are taking our jobs, to take a very timely phrase, or how the oh, homosexuals are degenerates and they're going to destroy the country, or the Democrats are uh, whatever QAnon wants to believe this week, that their investments are first uh, that of the, the social, economic, political, cultural, racial, racist, pedagogical, and religious. The delirious person applies that delirium to the family and to the son as the delirium overreaches the family. Basically, uh, the father in this case uh, has the delirium, but the family is being sort of his uh, direct cohesive social unit. Uh, he applies them. He applies that to them at large. And in the case of the film, uh, he takes the religious aspects uh, very particularly, and he goes, uh, "Oh, Abraham. Uh, the reason Abraham, the reason everything's gone wrong is because Abraham." wussed out and didn't actually kill his son and I should just kill my son because that'll prove God I love God uh, and that's the delirium sort of applied directly to the son but it begins outwardly as this larger delirium on the social field of that something's not right God's not right things aren't right right now God's unhappy etc mm -hmm. uh, 
that's that's where I see how delirium applies there. Social field and social is two two drastically different things here. However, uh, so I, I uh, maybe oh, okay uh, misunderstood. Uh, as social field is uh, all of those elements. I don't want to say a plane of them. I'm going to try to communicate my understanding of that, but it's uh, the, the 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 social field of all of these elements is. Uh, I'm not going to be able to communicate this super well. Uh, I don't think they're the same thing, the socialist and the social field, though. And that's it. That's all I got. I'm not going to be able to communicate it super well. Sorry. So it might help to bear in mind that the socius is like a body without organs at a larger um, sort of um, molar level, I think it is. Although it, I think it doesn't impinge on the molecular, but like with the social field, we're talking about um, like what they're talking about stock and um, like an inventory, uh, the investments, codes and territories related to um, more or less the cultural. But I suppose too, like the, the social field, I, I don't think has to be like the people of Liechtenstein. I, I think we can leave it in connection with um like a, a certain um, group dimension. Now that I'm seeing uh, Brooks points, uh, the bullet points, uh, I was puzzled right now on the drawings. And I have to say, uh, and excuse my language, fuck the Bloomsbury edition. I have no drawings at all in this edition. <laughs> Uh, so I'm quite confused, and uh, I was. Let, let me to... let me snip some for you, and I can toss them into the chat. Uh, that will help, I think. Yeah, yeah. I have the the other edition open now as a PDF, and uh, yeah, I was trying to 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 imagine these these diagrams as they were describing them, and it w would have ha would have had helped uh, if I could see them <laughs> as they intended them. And you probably were just like. Oh, Brooks is insane today. That's good. The drawings, the drawings. Um, Be before we go into the drawings, could I circle back to the question of delirium? Yeah, let's um, let's stick oh, with yeah, that. Please, we'll, we'll, please. we'll get back to we'll get back to all of this because there's even more stuff. Uh, we're fortunate to have a uh, Terrence Blank on Twitter. I guess listen to our podcast, and I believe that uh, Terrence, hello, welcome. That's uh, exciting to have you here. Uh, dropped a few notes on some things that actually I think are worth us bringing up too. So we've got a lot to go over. So let's take our time and make sure we get through all these points smartly. So please continue, Jack. Cool. Uh, the reason I want to circle back to it is um, I've got the Simeotest uh, Hatred of Capitalism reader, and one of the interviews in there is between um, an interview with Deleuze and Guattari called Capitalism, a Very Special Delirium. I just want to read a couple passages that might help clarify uh, what they mean by delirium. So this is Deleuze talking. Uh, he says... I'm going to skip around a little bit, but underneath all reason lies delirium, drift. Everything is rational in capitalism, except capital or capitalism itself. The stock market is cer certainly rational. One can understand it, study it. The capitalists know how to use it, and yet it is completely delirious. It's mad. In this sense, we say the rational is always the rationality 
of an irrational. So right, like this is Weber irrational rationality. So it seems like already they're kind of setting up a parallel there where delirium is kind of like a delirious desiring. To go just a little bit further, um, let's see here. What is rational in society is the interests being defined in the frameworks of society. The way people pursue those interests, their realization. But down below are desires, investments of desire that cannot be confused with the investments of interest, which are later called rational, and on which interests depend in their determination and distribution, an enormous flux. All kinds of libidinal and conscious flows made up the delirium of this society. The true history is the history of desire. Um, let me skip just a little bit further. Here we go. Our delirium and interest, or rather desire and reason, note the connection, distributed in a completely new, particularly so-called abnormal way in capitalism. We believe so, capital or money. Is at such a level of insanity that psychiatry has but one clinical equivalent, the terminal stage. In other societies, there is exploitation. There are also scandals and secrets, but these are part of the so-called code. There are even explicitly secret codes. With capitalism, nothing is secret, at least according to the code. This is why capitalism is so-called democratic and can seemingly publicize itself, even in the juridical sense. So then they move on into like legality and that. But I, I think what they're getting at with delirium is they're talking about how all these desires sort of relate to one another and how, especially in the social field, on, um, in relation to like the socius of capital, it, it's like an irrational rationality. So like desires countervail with each other, with decoding and deterritorializing. There's no, um, there isn't a harmony. But what do you guys think? Does that did is my take? Um, does that make sense? Do you agree? Disagree? I was muted that whole time. I have been talking for about a minute and a half and wondering why people were just talking over me. So, uh, I'll, let me let me try again. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I think I had a salient point at one point. Um, I wanted to go over the social field because. The, I think the thing we're talking about here is how delirium covers that. The social field on page 265 of my edition, which is at the end of uh, chapter three, section 11, uh, and where they actually get into where Oedipus kind of comes back into this, where it happens is in the social field. And they define it as where everyone acts and is acted upon as a collective agent of enunciation an agent of production and anti-production. Uh, that is where the social field is. Uh, the, the, the term here that's really important is uh, collective agent of enunciation. Uh, this is not the unconscious. This is the actual active social field. Enunciation is about where you make, it's not statement, it's where you actually are uh, uh, in the act of speaking, the act of interacting, the act of doing these things, where people act and are acted upon. That is the social field. So in delirium, this is not a thing that uh, sits inside of our unconscious and wanders around particularly. This is where and how people talk about the way the world works. 
how we act upon the world is in this collective delirium. Uh, in this case, we're talking about capital, but uh, specifically in capital, we're talking about all of this being reduced ultimately, as they say, to quote, to Oedipus, uh, reduced to Oedipus, where everyone now finds himself cornered and cut along the line that divides him into an individual subject of the statement and an individual subject of enunciation. Again, that difference between statement and enunciation. I think uh, Kent will be joining us uh, because I think a lot of that is, uh, Kent and I have been doing deep dives into Yav uh, and really, really liking it. But um, that's specifically where the social field is. And so that places it in a very different place than the socius, uh, which is uh, sort of that at large uh, way that history, you know, body without organs kind of thing. Did my mic work this time? Yeah. It yes, it did. Okay, good. <laughs> and it was helping, definitely. And it, in some sense, it reminds me of an earlier version of uh, Social Fields from uh, Pierre Bourdieu. Uh, and I don't know if this connection is, is totally false, uh, but but uh, in, in the Social Fields of, of Bourdieu, as I understood it, um, religion... Um, markets, political fields, these are all uh, social fields uh, in analogy to systems uh, theory, for example. And these are operating with uh, specific codes and with uh, specific operations within uh, these, these fields. And maybe uh, delirium is uh, some sort of code that is uh, very repressively used uh, as this primary code that is uh, induced into other social fields or aspects of this field and other social systems. I'm not sure it's necessarily a code per se, because especially in, in capitalism, right, we're dealing with coding and decoding um, and with associates engaged in decoding and deterritorializing. I think that's kind of the key is with with the delirium, I, I think what they're getting at is the way that this all bumps together. Or that is to say like like a very like an asymmetric jigsaw puzzle, if you like, where it's almost to me that um and this this example of um the movie I think kinda of helps cement it where you've got a um you've got a high school teacher who I if I understand correctly is um, is still engaged in teaching and all that, right? But he's also an overworked father. So you've got different um, libidinal investments there into the familial and albeit the social as well. You've got libidinal investments um, with his engagement in the radio taxi service, right? So like he, he's got like a, it sounds like a second job. So you can see he's engaged in a lot of work. These are all social investments, right? And in that sense, he's actively invested um, by the social field, by these different interactions, um, as he would be engaging with them, right? It, it, it's, um, it's that flow and those break flows. With that, I think this contributes to delirium in the sense that this is all leading to like, like this isn't something you know, these kind of desires um, have a certain, like they're saying, like a delirium about them in the sense that, like, yes, it seems like you you want to do these jobs, but at the same time, you don't want to do them, right? That's, and I'm trying to, I don't know if it's necessarily a double bind, but 
it's like I, I think the Weber term helps here. It's irrational rationality, or like in game theory, where um, I like the example Rick Roderick uses, right? If you've got a sheep herder with a hundred sheep on one side of the field and another on the other, and you have them all drive down to get the good grass at the same time, well, that's all rational, but you end up with two hundred dead sheep, right? It's an irrational rationality, and in the same way, this seems to be delirious desire. Also, say one of the things, and this is going to be something we're going to be, I think, struggling to integrate over the course of the next few sections. Um, as we talk about coding and as we talk about territorialization, read the re D and territorialization. I'm just not going to say all three words, uh, it's too much. Um, one of the things we have to start doing is. Uh, also bringing in the way that they talk about the two different types of investment, the paranoia, paranoiac and the schizophrenic, because those are two different types of even thinking about coding or how these things get invested or how we work inside of those. Um, the to, I'm just going to read through Holland on this. Um, Unlike uh, the other modes of production then, which did their utmost to code or overcode desire and channel its investment into pre-assigned objects, the capitalist socius supports two different kinds of investment, one corresponding to the liberation of abstract subjective desire and labor by detailization and decoding, the other corresponding to the resuscitation of temporary artificial territories and code through re-territorialization and recoding. This difference is so fundamental that Deleuze and Guattari present it as the basic thesis of schizoanalysis. In fact, the last of these four theses they present in chapter four, uh, two poles of social libidinal investment, paranoia and Schizophrenia, arising from the movement of deterritorialization and decoding, designate reform desire in the psyche and the potential for history under capitalism, while paranoia, corresponding to re-territorialization and artificial recoding, designates the obstacles to realizing this potential that are imposed by private capital accumulation. So we're talking about kind of now we're no longer talking about uh, just coding and decoding. We have to have a, I don't want to say there's like a matrices now of like, oh, this is, this is the schizophrenic decoding and here's paranoia, but it is the two sides of that because they, and I think they talk about this, they are cyclical. And uh, as uh, they are in the drawings, things move through them and bounce off of them and land in different places. So as, as we talk about that, I want to make sure that we start incorporating that language because I think it's going to be very important as we move forward. Yeah, it, the, the Holland thing is such a, a crisp and clear way to sort of talk through it, but it's the, the language of the chapter, I think, is the part that I really enjoy how they're going through it. And I want to actually spend a few moments going through some of the things we laughed about. Uh, well, some of the things I laughed about this morning as uh, Terrence, again, thank you for writing us. Um, they actually have a couple of things at uh, the bottom of page 277. Uh, this is actually kind of an important mistranslation. <laughs> Um, the way in which uh, an expected revolutionary force, uh, puissance, breaks free, sometimes even in the midst of words archaisms, um, it's actually unexpected revolutionary force, which I think makes this sentence make sense to me now. <laughs> because uh, the idea that a revolutionary force would be expected in a schizophrenic delirium is... 
it, it just, I was so confused by that. So uh, let me reread this sort of sentence. Uh, Doubtless there are astonishing oscillations of the unconscious from one pole of delirium to the other. The way in which an unexpected revolutionary force breaks free, sometimes even in the midst of the worst archaisms. Inversely, the way in which everything turns fascist or envelops itself in fascism, the way at which it falls back into archaisms. So that sentence now makes sense to me. I wanted to make sure we got that in there because it's important. Thank you for that, Terrence. Uh, and then the other one that I really uh, wanted to bring up is we got stuck on that line. Where is it? Uh, bottom of 278. I know we talked a little bit about this, Lou, uh, before we started recording, but I want to go over it. Um, we have here, basically, we talk about two different almost poetic terms. Uh, we talk about at the bottom of 278, uh, the matricle fissure of schizophrenia as opposed to paranoiac castration and the line of escape as opposed to the blue line, the blues. Uh, so from Terence, just to directly read the tweets, uh, the blue line, the blues, anti of its page 278. In French, there is no reference to the blues, which uh, we talked about yesterday. But the blue line is from a very famous quote, the blue line of the Vogue Mountains. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I anglicize everything terribly. Uh, separating Alsace-Lorraine from the rest of France, named in his will by Jules Ferry. I will not speak, and I cannot pronounce any of this French. Um, I want to lie in the same tomb as my father and mother, facing this blue line of the Vogue, which rises up to my faithful heart, the touching plaint of the defeated. Uh, the... The use of this, uh, to read Terence's line, this makes sense of the passage in Antiedipus which opposes the blue line and ferries retoratorialization onto his natal village and his parents' tomb to the line of flight. Inserting the blues into the text confuses everything. Yes, it does. And I actually really, this helps me understand a lot more of this section because as they're going through here and they talk about the blue line, they're essentially, it's, I mean, they do their sardonic kind of mocking of the situation. Um, the line of escape as opposed to the blue line, the idea of him re-territorializing uh, at the time, which was a contested space between uh, Germany and France, uh, I believe, uh, Alsace-Lorraine. Uh, and then we go into Ginsburg straight away um, with a poem about his mother. So it's on the one side, uh, we have a fairy who's talking about where he came from uh, a, a deep re-territorialization of some very specific things inside of the social field. And then it's immediately followed by Ginsburg actually saying uh, a poetry about his mother breaking her down into all the little pieces and all the little bits of his memory of her as he's trying to make sense of what her life was and where he comes from. It's a almost a re-territorialization on one side followed by Ginsburg's deep almost blasting apart deterritorialization of his mother and where he came from on the other side. Um, the paranoiac and the schizophrenic, which then, why these words, paranoia and schizophrenia into the next paragraph, actually adds a nice poetic uh, lineage there. I kind of like. So that's uh, the big stuff that uh, has come up since then. Sorry to sort of ramble for a moment, but it's important for those who are following as they listen, as their main reading, that we kind of go back over where we can. And the, the bit about Ginsburg and his mother does help explain what they call the matrical or matrical fissure of uh, schizophrenia. And I think it's an interesting that the, the blue line for fairy there um, is 
paranoiac castration par excellence. Like the 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 story of this, what he wants and how he wants to be buried there, and how he wants it back, and and it's they're very interesting sort of opposing poetic messages it's a really good use of that and this helps explain that I think at least for my brain nicely yeah and I, I think this too like even when I look at these the lines they selected from Ginsburg like it's so interesting to, to see how these compare and, and even juxtapose with each other right um, especially if we are talking about a Fisher or otherwise like a line of escape, right? Where, where like the communist party is situated next to a broken stocking or um, a fear of Hitler is um, almost immediately followed by uh, her chin of Trotsky and the Spanish war, right? Three like really interesting um, historical references there, right? A fear of Hitler, so right, like we're talking about fascism, we're talking about like a, what would seem to be a revolutionary investment. Um, definitely not turning out that way, right? Or even sort of beginning that way. But so likewise, so too with um, her chin of Trotsky, right? Like this is almost like a Picasso style um, uh, poetry where like these different images are like, you know, they, they work so well in contrast with one another especially following that up with the spanish war where um if i remember correctly like um the socialists of spain are uh, are fighting for something that is comparable with what might have occurred in the russian revolution but i don't think the, i don't think the bolshevikism is um is really privy there right so it, once again it's, it's a stark contrast uh, I would like to go back a little bit into, I think, um, a little bit more of a foundational question I have because I'm, as I reread this last night and as I was listening, because I, I posted up the uh, recording already, so I was re-listening to it, I was going through it, I realized I have a failure of understanding with the concept of uh, <laughs> Uh, what it means here, how it can be applied, and how I should be taking in this concept. Um, they kind of open up, let's uh, just jump, it's the bottom of page 275, that paragraph. Uh, Hence we are confronted by three unavoidable conclusions. From the point of regression, whose meaning is only medical, it is the father who is in first, who is first in relation to the child. The paranoid father epilizes the son. Guilt is an idea projected. I understand the second part of that, but what is the point of view of regression? What does that mean? I don't know what. How I don't I don't I don't, under, I don't understand what regression means in this sense. And they use it a lot in this section. Uh, can I ask a question of? Um... Uh, Ken, hopefully your mic is working. Could you tell us a little bit about regression as it relates to um, uh, therapeutic practice? Uh, I mean, I can try. Um, uh, and it depends on, like, but I, I guess since I'm the the young guy next to Kent here, um, there's this. Uh, concept of like the lowering of the mental level <clears throat> and it's uh... <sighs> so uh, whenever 
uh, a person is in some sort of sensory deprivation chamber or um, whenever you're alone at night in the dark and starting to fall asleep, you'll have uh, things sort of spontaneously come to mind. Um, in one way, this is the sense of regression where you sort of uh, delimit uh, like external stimuli in a sense. Um, and uh, and uh, products come up. But um, so there's this idea that uh, regression is a is a negative thing and that you can do something magical like regress to a uh, an earlier period of development or um or uh like infantile regression and whatnot and that's i don't really know how that came about uh to be honest um uh regression is this uh this process by which um I mean, you don't try to make things happen. Uh, I mean, there's a certain spontaneity to it. I'm not doing a great job. We just went over it in volume eight, so I'm sort of failing myself here. Uh, but there's this idea that there's, you know, um, some sort of reparative material in in the slime that you may find in the quote-unquote depth Um but it's not there is no depth to it and uh it's not necessarily slime either it's just um things that people would normally substitute with other things and that's repression repression isn't like pushing something asunder repression is substituting something for something else and that's why it's repression's always the return of the press the press so whenever you kind of don't uh whenever you take away some sort of external stimuli, the substitutions sort of aren't there. So whenever you have the return of the repressed, um, the quote-unquote original material is what returns. So um, whether that be, you know, some sort of existential anxiety or guilt or shame or a... Um, or a revolutionary desire and whatnot. Uh, this comes out of regression. Okay. I'm going to ask a pointed question because the second part of that paragraph says, if regression taken in an absolute sense reveals itself to be inadequate, it is because this regression encloses us in simple reproduction or generation. This is where I follow my personal understanding of regression, uh, because my my limit is of this is fully layperson. A lot of what you said actually just now helped, um, but the idea for me is if if regression taken in absolute sense reveals itself, if if regression as a technique, analytic technique maybe, is what they're to here, um, then 
uh, we find that regression doesn't do enough. It's because regression as a technique uh, encloses us in simple reproduction or generation. Uh, taking organic bodies and organized persons as its object, the theory of regression merely attains the object of reproduction. Uh, the point of view of the cycle alone is categorical and absolute because it attains production as the subject of reproduction, which is to say it attains the process of autoproduction of the unconscious. Uh, this is where I fall apart in my... I just don't get it. That That's where, like, I start like, oh, yeah, no, nope, 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 as that sentence goes on. <laughs> on. Oh, like, what, what, what do I do with it? Well, can I can I, I just ask a well ask a question make a comment so we can like uh, get out of the mud get the four by four going um, if if we talk about regression and and when they say it's theoretical you know it works in theory but um, regression is also uh, part of a semiotic process of making sense of reality so ba basically um, to actually uh, talk about regression is to uh, allow the possibility of going back into um, an original state, but the original state is stated within the semiotic process. But So there's no, uh, it's like the same thing as saying the psychoanalysis has to say daddy and mommy. It's to reframe it into a semiotic structure, but to frame it into that manner produces the subject that is engaged within the regression. So to say, uh, as they may have said before, uh, it's similar to Oedipus itself, where if we're analyzing the world with Oedipus, it's, hey, look, everything looks like Oedipus. Yep. Uh, if, if we use regression as it is now and we look at the subject in a very specific way, hey, look, it turns out the subject looks like how we expected it to. It's a, every, if, uh, every psychoanalyst has a hammer, everything, every patient looks like a nail. Yeah, because it's a form of coding or mapping. So if you produce a map of the individual or the social through a particular structure or you know taught organization, um, the, the the social will resemble the map that you made. Okay, so my my understanding, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to say this another way because uh, I'm I'm sorry I'm stuck on this point. Uh, regression is I've kind of. Uh, handled the concept in my head over the course of my life is that uh, uh, regression inside of psychoanalytics and inside of psychology is basically trying to get me as a person, as a subject to find the archetypes of my pain within my past and try to talk about them in incredibly simplistic ways um, and try to find them. Uh, the issue with that, as they're saying here, is basically that um, it's ultimately this process forces us into simple reproduction of the thing that we already know. So it becomes a problem unto itself uh, that it's basically uh, like Oedipus. It is generating the thing that uh, is actually causing the problem somewhat. Yeah. And I mean, that would largely be a product of like the preconceived notion of what uh, therapy is and whatnot you know like the image of freud and what people think um like free association does and whatnot and how it brings you back to daddy mommy and me but um insofar as it's possible to not have those preconceived notions that's not what comes out of it it's like a it's like a 
phantasmatic trip of sorts. Like, um, you, 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 you have no idea what's going to show up behind your eyelids, you know? Yeah, I, th- that's, that's supposed to be the ideal, not the, uh, not taking me back to my primal scene or, or even my traumas. Yeah, I think the thing here, though, is if, if we go back to Roger's the, comment. The... Oh, go ahead, Kim. No, I was done. Oh, gotcha. If we go back to Roger's comment and we start thinking about this in terms of the generative and regenerative, right? So, like, based on what um, Ken's elucidating for us, it sounds like regression is a way of, I mean, in a Jungian sense, it's probably something like bringing the unconscious into some level of consciousness, right? But in a more general sense, it sounds like what we're doing is we're trying to access memories, right? Or content in some manner, or maybe break flows, right? We're sort of tracing libidinal flows um, at some level, right? In terms, and and the reason I bring up memory here is, it sounds like, um, and I really like uh, Roger's use of um, the phrase, uh, like a point of origin, Right, so it sounds like we're trying to, it's not that we're really going back to a point where things happened to us or where we made those associations, right? It's that we're kind of, we're bringing that point forward to us more so, right? And in that way, it's regenerative. So like in a productive sense, like when we when we connect with these um, these memories or these, these associations, right? Um, these um, conjunctions, if you like, or just these signs, these codes. In that way, I think what they're talking about in terms of it being um, re- regenerative here is that you're um, you're reproducing things, right? You're reproducing the memories. You're going through them again, yeah. And in that way, I think what they're getting at here is that um, that view of regression. It sounds good, right? But. Um, I think what they're getting at is that, so let me give a passage here. This leads psychoanalysis to develop an absurd theory of fantasy in terms of which the father, the mother, and their real actions and passions must first be understood as fantasies of the child, the Freudian abandonment of the theme of seduction, right? So like they're getting into like how fantasies, like what we're accessing in this process is becoming a fantasy or a play out of the Oedipal, right? And in that sense, it's reproducing the Oedipal, right? Which is kind of a, one of the big takeaways that, that Roger and um, Brooks were talking about. Hello? Yes, Terrence. Hello. Um, I'm not sure if this is relevant, but um, for me, the regression is part of uh, the sort of two... Um, movement for deconstruction that Deleuze and Watari use. The regression is, is saying that uh, Oedipus doesn't start in the child, but it starts in the father, but the father was a child, and back and back. And for me, that goes with um, statements they made elsewhere that um, whenever you're faced with a a binary or a dualism, you have to um, first reverse or invert the priorities and privilege um, the opposite side to what is 
privilege normally as a preliminary step to um, opening up a multiplicity. So there's no foundation, um, but to do that, you have to say the foundation in this case, the foundation is the, the child. Um, but in fact, that doesn't work because um, you can show that um, the, the, the fantasy comes from the, the father. Um, but a child is sort of, seems to be a unit because we confuse social reproduction and biological reproduction. So the child seems like an isolated unit and we'll never get to um, the social field or the socius if we start from the child with our ordinary conceptions. So we have to see that um, there's an infinite, well, the child um, gets Oedipus, is infected with Oedipus from the father, who is infected from his father and so on. And then that what makes the father a father is um, a social determination. Um, so the first step is saying, if you're going to do regression, or if you're going to do filiation, there's this difference between filiation and alliance as well. If you're going to do filiation, um, uh, you, you're sort of forced into um, a regression, but then you see the regression is infinite. And the way out of that is by saying that, in fact, it's not the father as biological unit, but um, it's the whole social field. So the multiplicity of um, assemblages and inscriptions that um, generate the, the complex. And the delirium comes in because um, Deleuze often says that a, an assemblage, as he's using it, has two faces. Um, the ma machinic face, which is desire, in um, a sort of separated out, purified sense of desire, because the other face is the collective assemblage of enunciation. And that's, for me, the de delirium. So desire often, he talks about it as if it's desire and de de delirium are sort of um, one and the same. But when, once you start making so the distinction between the machining face and the enunciated face, um, you assign delirium to the enunciative face of this double-sided um, assemblage. Well, I'm, I, as a as a short answer, I'm going to say no, but I think it will be. I I'm trying, I, I, it's, I think it's going to have to process. Uh, there's, you, if you had just said one point, I think my brain would have been uh, able to catch up. But well, I want to say everything else because I've been trying to talk and um, I haven't managed it up to now. So, um, for me, one point: regression is facing um, the uh, complexes of the child. Um, to the father and then going back um, further and further because the father was a child. So for me, that's the sense of regression that is being referred to there at that beginning of chapter four.
So if uh, it's not it's not this um uh hypnotic regression or um regressing into the womb or or, or whatever uh, um it's this uh explanation by affiliation and tracing the affiliation back i mean that's so first uh thanks because that's good to know because that means i was reading this differently than i should have been so regarding in this sense almost means uh uh, uh, trying to boil down things to where they really come from. Uh, and, and what is the, what is the story in, in, in this case? Uh, and, and we quote, uh, Lou quotes uh, on 274, uh, Oedipus is first, and I, of, is, the, is first the idea of an adult paranoiac before it is the childhood feeling of an erotic. So it is that psychoanalysis has much difficulty extracting from itself an infinite regression. The father must have been a child, but was able to be a child only in relation to the father, who was himself a child, in relation to his father, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as in, at infinium. Uh, that's the regression that they're referring to on the next page in 275. That makes more sense. Okay. Uh, that was my understanding, and I had trouble to um, bring that together with uh, the uh, psychoanalytic uh, jargon we discussed later, um, and that meaning of regression. But I've actually looked up where they first mention regression and progression, and they have in the second chapter on page 108 um where they talk about the double bind um of oedipus um the first mention of progression and regression i'll just read this short section uh, but psychoanalysts are bent on producing man abstractly that is to say ideologically for culture it is oedipus who is who produces man in this fashion and who gives a structure to the false movement of infinite progression and regression. Your father and your father's father, a snowball gathering speed as it moves from Oedipus all the way to the father of the primal horde, to God and the Paleolithic age. It is Oedipus who makes us man for better or worse, say those who would make fool of, fools of us all. The tone may vary, but the message remains basically the same. You will not escape Oedipus. Your sole choice is between the neurotic outlet and the non-neurotic outlet. So I think this really, this is the first time they they really talk about regression in this sense in the book on page 108. And I think this really feeds into uh, like this is basically uh, complementary with uh, what with this uh, quote about from the beginning of uh, well, I just stops talking I can't talk sorry let's uh let's take a second um at, let's go ahead and stop on regression because I think we've kind of solved that one uh regression is referring to this concept of uh, looking back seeing how things have become uh uh to to try to say it, Terence, I'm going to attempt um, to to see how things are formed inside of the social field uh, over time, uh, backwards, whatever it may be. That that's regression, the progression, regression as we look back. In this case, they're talking about Oedipus. We obviously can't just say it starts with the child because that's insane. Child is obviously influenced by the father. Father makes the child 
the neurotic, but at some point uh, that turns into the paranoiac, uh, which is the father, which at some point a father did that to that child, that man when he was a child, and so on and so on and so on. Um, so that's the regression they're talking about. And again, uh, I think the, the same line is generally accurate. Uh, this regression encloses us in simple reproduction or generation. Uh, we know the form of it. It will continue to be that form as we look backwards. There's really no point in doing that. It's ad infinitum. And that doesn't help us at all to be able to say ad infinitum. So um, that's that's the issue they're discussing here. Is that fair, I think? Is that a short version? Lou, Jack, Terrence, if I'm completely fucking up? Uh, sounds right. And I think Terrence is gone. He's, he's, he's jumping back and forth. I think his mic is having uh, issues. Uh, he's been trying to, to communicate and talk, and Discord is not being super helpful for him, sadly. Uh, I think so too, though. Um, I should mention too that we're taking on, just for the purposes of contextualizing this conversation, we are taking on two of the three errors um, of psychoanalysis here. So we're tackling two at once for those of you with us at home. It helps too, though, um, just to focus on one last sentence here. Guilt is an idea. So in terms of like the, the reproduction and the production, the paranoiac. The paranoiac father oedipalizes the son. Guilt is an idea projected by the father before it is an inner feeling experienced by the son. So, right, like, there's your, there's your mutual investing, right? There's your, you know, the, the kind of um, interpretive object offered here, right? Is the father's guilt is projected and internalized by the son. Yeah, there's this kind of mutual investment. Um, that appears to be happening here. Um, since there's a break, uh, I thought I'd mention that uh, another way to look at this is in terms of microgenesis, which is uh, the idea that uh, when gestalts form, uh, they go through a series of uh, stages, and that when you look back at what those stages are in the development of a, a a gestalt, the a lot of times the 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 proto figures that that pop up in that are very different from the final gestalt, and so um, and so you know you could see these um, things that um, that appear in in uh, in in psychological regression um, as those microgenetic products that that are that are uh, proto gestalts that's in the the other sense of regression which is going back to a childlike uh, 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 mental state I don't think your mic is working Terrence I'd love I'd love to say, I can't hear you can you hear him I'm it's uh his mic is I don't think it's transmitting yeah, um, I don't know. Same as bad okay. as you. What about that? Is that transmitting? Oh, there you are. There you are. Ah, okay. Um, although the senses of regression uh, are different, I think there's a, a sort of point of convergence with what Ken just said, because one of the ways 
that you can understand the socius is um, the big other, the symbolic order of Lacan and Zizek. And uh, Zizek is always saying that um, uh, between unmanifest being and um, actualized reality, there's a sort of um, proto-reality. Lots of things go on between um, the being as void and being as, as manifestation. And um, that may join up with what um, Kent was saying about um, uh, microgenesis on a on a collective level, the um, schizophrenic desire and delirium are the microgenetic um, proto-reality from which uh, the, sim the different symbolic orders or sociuses are um, constituted. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. I don't know if that would make sense for anybody else, but um, if we read it differently, you know, if we go into Thousand Plateau and we take another, uh, well, two concepts that are being found there, and I don't think they're that much explored in, in T. Oedipus, but the, the concept of the diagram or the abstract machine. So it's it's always situated into the pre-individual. And, you know, like now I'm, I'm linking it to Simone Don, but... Um, it's 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 what's underlying you know it would be it, we're trying to map the uh, by doing so uh, by doing regression we're trying to map a form of the pre-individual so basically like this template the diagram that goes through and actually uh permits the passage for potent from potentiality to actuality i don't know if that makes sense for you it's really short as an as a comment but um I think it helps to like translate it into other uh, concepts. If, if I understand you correctly, you're saying like the, the so the abstract diagram machine here would be like reproduction, right? At the and I think this theoretical level where it's trying to trace the pre-individual, um, right? And, and I think the the what can be the trick of the light there is that it would seem like regression takes us back to the, um, the pre-individual, but that's not exactly it. Is it like you're saying, right? Um, because um, we're, we're, yeah, it, it, partly because um, there's processes, but like we're, we're putting a template on those processes to do regression is to go back into somewhat of like, I'm going to say something stupid, but like a universal uh, past that, you know, is being reproduced through, um, Genera uh, generation when we talk about like the the child and the, the father but at the same time those processes are way more open than the way we try to explain them and to uh, try to trace back the diagram we're tracing back to vital processes but at the same time organizing them into uh, a certain form that is more like out of the semiotic than the real and, and that's why it's categorical and absolute, right? Because it, 
one, like you're saying, you get the diagram kind of sitting above things and organizing it, right? So it kind of keeps us from going to the to what's actually there, yeah, because we're dealing with the map. But in dealing with the map too, right, now we have the problem of like it being reproductive or in the sense of like the guilt, which I think is the object they're talking about in that second mistake as well. The object of guilt here um, getting reproduced now. Or, or now entering the um, the system, or even produced. I don't know if this uh, <laughs> this jazzy interpretation helps anybody else. Yes, I, I agree. It's, it's it's the failure of regression. If we could, then can we walk this out a little bit further? Because um, and again, for those of you following with us at home, we're looking at the second. Um, unavoidable conclusions, right? We got a little bit hung up on this yesterday and we just didn't have the time to really give it a full treatment. Um, but since we're going through these three unavoidable conclusions, the second part of the second, the second part of the second gets into sexuality, right? So after after what we just um, talked about, right, with the, the unity of history and of nature from homo natura to homo historia, and not a Latin, but Italian accent, perhaps, uh, they continue, it is certainly not sexuality that is in the service of generation, but progressive or regressive generation that is in the service of sexuality as a cyclical movement by which the unconscious, always remaining so-called subject, reproduces itself. I'm at the top of 276. Uh, they continue, there is then no longer any call for wondering which is first, the father or the child? Because such a question can be only raised within the framework of fam familialism. We dive into um, what's going on here with sexuality and the familial. And, and, and what we say is familialism, the, the form of saying it, you know, it places it into an ideology. Because Freud always brings back everything might into... Might need the white one, which is on the table. Not the white table. <laughs> the family's coming in but uh yeah it's a criticism of the type of ideology that is being uh, used by freud into like uh replacing everything within the family so that's what that's what we say when uh we talk about familialism yeah and if i understand correctly right with that the freudian thing is like sexuality is caught up in the familial right but i think what deleuze and guadar are saying here is it's not that um, sexuality is in service of the generative. That is to say, like, all the things you're accessing, uh, like we're talking about in regression, where sexuality would seem to have produced those, but more so that, um, whether right, progressive or, re progressive or regenerate, uh, progressive or regressive generation that is in the service of sexuality, right? So it sounds like that's... The, the regressive act and even the progressive act here, um, as contrast, those two things seem to be playing into how sexuality will actually be productive. Is that what you guys are getting out of this? My mind has drifted off in a different direction because as we started talking about kind of the natural language of things and, and the direction of all of that, um, I I, I, I I was reading um, the end of uh, Yomslev's uh, uh, 
theory of language. He's got a section on connotative semiotics and metasemiotics that is about uh, specifically a lot of this, <laughs> and it's it's really an extraordinary. Uh, I, my my brain's just gone that direction, so I'm reading through that right now. Uh, could could I go back to that point that? Uh, please please can go ahead please. Um, so I'm struck by this uh, phrase that says the unconscious always remaining subject reproduces itself. And that reminds me of something in Jung where he says that the ego is the, you know, um, we think of it as the kind of clear center of the unification and totalization of the subject. But uh, but he says that that's the the you know, one of the most unconscious things is the ego. How does it, how does it actually work? And, um, which is called passive synthesis, by the way. But, um, so this phrase, the unconscious always remains subject, reproduces itself in this, um, you know, sequence of, of, uh, regression, which is going back through the lines of fathers and sons or progression, which is going forward through the lines of the sons. What's really happening there is that the, the, uh, the unconscious is reproducing itself in each generation uh, in, in order to remain a subject, which is, I think, an interesting idea. Well, and that flows from the idea not to treat Oedipus as though it is a subject, but uh, about how Oedipus essentially is a machine for producing itself. And they go through that a lot earlier. So if we're talking about, in this case, a father producing this with his son inside of the familial unit, it's also Oedipus. It's the Oedipus machine or Oedipus apparatus, whatever we want to say. Uh and the subject constantly being created. So, uh, but, ah, <clears throat> oh, geez, maybe I shouldn't have said that last thing. Forgive me. So, 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 so I, I just want to say that, you know, this second error is the idea that, you know, you're going to focus on sexuality and that kind of takes the uh, focus off of what's really happening, which is the unconscious is reproduce, uh, reproducing itself as subject generation after generation. Um, is, you know, it's, that's kind of like the main thing that's happening. And, uh, and the, you know, we're all fascinated with sexuality and Freud kind of gets off on that tangent. And, and then by doing that, you miss the key thing that's happening, which is this reproduction of the subject through the generations. Well, then I, I would wonder the, there are a few lines that, st that step me up. One of the big ones here is actually the one you just used. Um, uh, allows it having remained captive to an unrepentant familialism that condemned it to evolve solely within the movement of regression or progression. I am unfamiliar of another way for a thing to evolve. It's either f like that's that language, I think, is where I'm stuck on trying to understand what they're trying to say here, because uh is there a third direction a thing can go? Obviously, at some point, we're talking about progressing through the son, then through the who becomes a father, has a son, or regressing, where we talk about the father who had the son, who was once a child, who was a child to another man, who was a child to another man, and we're regression, regressing yeah, back. Yeah, but the, the familialism is the becoming father or the becoming child. You can have a becoming something.
something else. So by framing it into this kind of familialism, uh, you lock the possibility of you did you offer only a binary possibility of like going towards the child or going towards the father or like. But if we think about it in outside of the family and and you know in another language, another frame of mind, you offer other possibilities. So it's not so much that they're saying it's regression or progression that is being condemned, but instead inside of that unrepentant familialism that you've condemned this subject to be constantly created and forced into all of this. I would think so. Yeah, the specific roles of the father and the child with uh, specific connotations, like, uh, for example, in the Oedipus complex. Well, the opposite of the filiation is the, uh, yeah, filiation is the... Uh, uh, Alliance. Yeah. What, what's that called again? Alliance. alliance. Yeah, the alliances. That's what, Sorry, I skipped my mind for a second. The alliances, which they say, you know, that's, that it's really the social field. It's like everybody not just the family thank you actually that is helping me understand this a lot better and it flows with the rest of the chapter more i suppose a lot of um where my issues have been stemming from reading through this is i think i get the overall concept of this section but there are things said within it that i just uh don't see how they are either applying or trying to define that main point and the main point i think you guys have said exceptionally well here so thank you uh, I would like to go into now just just to just to say a little something from for the context it's it's sometimes it's difficult to grasp the idea because you know when we talk about familialism for example you know we don't we don't think as uh, we don't think of it as an ideology but in the 70s when this was written the criticism towards uh, Freudian um, psychoanalysis um, this term was used as not derogatory, but almost. So you know, it, it, we we miss a lot of context for those uh, those writings. So that that most of the difficulties, I think, they come from there. So since we've been going through uh, the first and then the second, I'd like to dive into the third. Uh, what do I want to call it? The unavoidable conclusions, um, and dive a little bit more into uh, what I read here is uh, that line specifically. Um, it appears that in the common social field, the first thing that the son represses or has to repress or tries to repress is the unconscious of the father and mother. Uh, the Again, as I mentioned, and I said, I, a lot of this is starting to point towards that concept of the machinic unconscious. Uh, but it feels here that they're talking about, as they've said a few times, uh, the the group delirium, the way that the unconscious has the ability to essentially communicate from parents to child. Uh, we essentially have them filtering in the social field to the child. And the first thing the child uh, represses, has to repress or tries to repress, is the unconscious of the father and mother. Uh, if they do not, they end up taking those things in and it becomes the basis for neuroses through the rest of their lives. The, the last part of here is where I'm wanting to make sure I'm thinking about this correctly because it sounds... Uh, I, I try to avoid taking Deleuze in a direction that I, someone I know would call hippy-dippy, but uh, this communication of unconsciousness does not by any means take the family as its principle. It takes by princi principle the commonality 
of the social field insofar as it is the object of investment desires. In all respects, the family is never determining, but always determined first as the stimulus of departure, then as the aggregate destination, finally as an intermediary or an interception of communication. The way society uh, forms us and the pressures and the delirium that surrounds us happens at a societal level. And when we're a child, it happens through our parents, essentially, as the social field is filtered by their unconsciousnesses into us almost, for lack of a better word, psychically or through osmosis. Is any of what I said there fairly close or am I just way the fuck off? I know where you want to go. But I would uh, disagree, uh, disagree in one point, and that is that um, there is this unconscious uh, osmosis uh, of roles. Uh, because I read this this first sentence uh, you've read with, um, uh, or has to repress or tries to repress, uh, is the unconscious of uh, the father and the mother. Um, uh, I read it in this way because uh, the main part of this section is then the oscillation between the schizophrenic and the paranoic, that the unconscious is not something uh, stable, not something static, but always in flux. And uh, it is in this sense, um, the, this repressing mechanism of the unconscious of the father and the mother um, that uh, the child drives into neurosis because um, uh, by this repression uh, the child doesn't see that all also father and mother have uh, these unconscious tendencies that they are not fixed roles uh, and they are not uh, the oedipus the father the uh, the lawgiver or the mother uh, that is uh, constituting uh, the more uh, bodily life of the child uh, I understand it in in this way. Yeah, what I would say is that, um, you know, this is referring to kind of like boundary setting that, you know, the you're you're in this kind of unconscious field between the mother and the father. And, you know, as the child gets into adolescence, they've got to start setting boundaries uh, for themselves in order to not just get swept away by the by the these influences from their unconscious and uh, and i find it interesting that the Lurs and guattari are using uh, the term communication here because in uh, the communication theory of their time uh, with uh, systems theory and uh, second order cybernetics and all this stuff um, there was this tendency to to describe communication as some sort of uh, uh, ordering or uh, selective processes that uh, enable some sort of reduction of complexity to order our world and to enable uh, social um, structures like in Luhmann uh, the, the social structures are not constitutive for communication, but it is uh, vice versa, that communication is the basis for society. It's it's uh, primary before the social. Yeah, I must admit, I've never understood Lumen's idea of autopoiesis. <laughs> Maybe you could explain that to me sometime. I think the reference here is Michel Serre. Ah, yes. Oh, yes. That could be a possibility. That's the first Hermes book came out in um, 1969, I think. It's called um, Communication. 
and the second one came out in 1972, but I think it's um, made up of articles that he published in different places before, and it's called Interference. And there was a, a dialogue, at least in the early, um, in the 60s and 70s between Deleuze and Michel Serre. So Serre was commenting on um, uh, cybernetic and communication type theories, but from a pluralist point of view. All right. Um, I have a handful of uh, Sarah's texts. Um, I've, I've, I've been told I shouldn't expect more to be done because apparently his writing is so intrinsically in the French language that I need to learn French in order to fully uh, understand it, which I'd love to say I, I have the capability of, but I do not. Um, I'll, all just right, right. In, I'll just move in with you and start the talking French. You'll be fine. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, that it doesn't work. Uh, I, I learned whenever, whenever I travel overseas or I end up in a country for an extended period, I've been in France for months, uh, China, same thing. And every time I end up being the guy everyone wants to practice their English with. So it's the way it goes. I never get immersed. Um, all right, let's continue. Uh, I've covered all of my major uh, questions for this. Um, so if anyone else has uh, things they would like to expand on or to ask about or to comment on, now would be the time. And it's open. Anyone, any questions, any, anything? Um, I've got something that I'd like to uh, share. So yesterday I put up something on a post-it. So I made a, I made a larger diagram uh, trying to understand, under, uh, show the relationship between, okay, so you're going to have to tell me how to pronounce this name. It's Jelmeslev? Yelmeslev. 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 Okay, I'll try. Please keep correcting me. Yelmeslev. Okay, so so I, I found an article that, that uh, talks about the ways that he um, uh, takes... Uh, de Saussure's uh, uh, semiotic system and kind of redefines it in a more rigorous way. And basically they were saying that uh, the, the basic uh, uh, split is between content and expression. And then each one of those is um, further uh, articulated into form, substance, and uh, purport. And um, and then there's another uh, distinction that they make between system and process. So anyway, there's a series of these uh, distinctions that they make. And what occurred to me, and which I, I mentioned yesterday at the end of our, uh, our talk, it, uh, the reading, was that um, I, I had this hypothesis that uh, he's much more important to anti-Oedipus than just the mention that was made of him. And one way you can see that is if you take this um, uh, set of concepts that, uh, that he has um, and you kind of say that the uh, body without organs as the wall is kind of like this limit between the two branches, between content and expression, 
so that they're both oriented toward that in terms of the purport. So the purport is kind of like the uh, um, either the 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 mass of the phonetic spectrum that's undifferentiated, or on the other side, the mass of concepts that are in, undifferentiated. And that basically it's form and substance on either side that are differentiating those. But if you take the body without organs as a single limit between them, then you get this interesting configuration that, that I'm starting to think is a key kind of model that Deleuze and Guattari are applying almost everywhere in the in, in, in and and you're not alone on this, Kent. Because and I know we've t- we've chatted about it lightly, but as I dive into a lot of and Helms Lab really only has one book, uh, and uh, it's uh, basically it's called Language, uh, Proglam Prologemina to a Theory of Language, um, at what however that is. I'll link to it at some point. Um, the the entire way he discusses things ends up getting into a point where we were having earlier discussions, for example, about medium as a message and going over how semiotics and, and media work within that. And really everything stems more from Yomslev than anyone else. And the more I read into it, the more it's far more uh, directly taken and really and more his writing. Um, so anyway, I, I just wanted to suggest this as a hypothesis that we might use to try to make perhaps make more sense of anti-Oedipus than it's made previously. And and it, it is it does involve McLuhan, but it but we're talking about something that I think is a lot more uh, in depth and very much as as Kent was saying lines up with a few of the things they've especially been saying in in so far in this section. Um, it, it lines up in a really interesting way, as Kent's diagram actually kind of shows when you split down the middle versus the other diagrams and you start having, I don't know, the way that they talk about metasemiotics um, and the way that planes uh, can actually be semiotics themselves and the semiotics of semiotics. And it starts becoming this thing where it's like, okay, this is actually how, if we want to talk about a machinic unconscious, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but there's a reason Helmslev is brought up again in A Thousand Plateaus. Like they really were influenced by a lot of what he had to say, at least as far as I can tell. Yeah. It's a tendency in academia as well. One of my professors in Weimar, who is uh, some kind of expert on Simondon and Guattari, uh, is now also digging uh, very deep into Yemslav. But I, yeah, I, I have a kind of stance against him. So You have a stance against him? Uh, uh, I don't know how to ex- express it. Uh, uh, I don't like his way of doing semiotics in, in this way, but maybe it's uh, because I don't know him uh, very good so far. Well, okay, so, so, but I guess what I'm suggesting is that whether we like him or not... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, we should uh, uh, definitely look into him uh, to understand. Yeah, but, but within uh, academia right now... Influence, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But within academia right now, uh, I don't know, at least, you know, in anthropology, where I'm at and uh, how I see things, um, 
the interest of Deleuze is to actually uh, move out of the uh, domain of semiotics, but also the domain of representations, because we're kind of stuck into, you know, those images. And by going towards Deleuze, um, it allows us to actually like um, take account of social and material processes that are producing the individuals. So I think that for a lot of people within the academia, I'm not saying for everybody, but a lot of people are taking the Deleuze route to avoid a certain type of interpretation. And then we we take away semiotics as much as we can because we want to see the underlying processes. And then at one point we're like, oh my God, we need to bring semiotics back. And I think that's what's <laughs> happening to your uh, professor because we're stuck. And like at my old dissertation, that's what was asked of me at the end. Like, what about semiotics? And I was just like, oh yeah, I should go back into this. But, <laughs> you know, I think it's, the, for some of us, that's the the, the, the problem that we face. Oh, no, I, no, I, did, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, so uh, it, it's the I guess this tendency still. Uh, this pro professor I was talking about, it's uh, he's in uh, media and cultural studies, and there is still this uh, tendency to read Deleuze and Guattari in a, a semiotic or more like a semiological sense. Um, but in philosophy, for example, uh, in my major, there's more this tendency uh, to read uh, Deleuze now as a natural philosopher and more uh, in a metaphysical way. I don't think you can understand any of these um, French philosophers without seeing that they all went through a, a semiotic turn, maybe in the late 50s or early 60s, um, but semiotic as against semiological. So they looked for other references than um, uh, Saussure, and that's where Hilslev came in. And also there's another um, linguist um, who's very little known uh, called Culioli, because he never wrote a, a, a sort of a book summary of his position, but he was one of the big figures in the semiotics of enunciation. And if you look at um, Foucault and, and Deleuze, um, they're constantly talking about enunciation and it's against this, this backdrop of uh, Culioli, um, also uh, Oswald de, de Croix, but um, Ducrot wrote real books, but Curioli, he, he mainly um, informed other people at university. Um, his ideas are, are incorporated into um, the, the program for becoming a teacher in English or in, in French for becoming a, a high school teacher. And um, his big thing was the linguistics of enunciation. It's not the statement, it's not, um, it's not the signifiers, but it's, it's at the level of enunciation that you can understand uh, what language is doing. 
Well, and with yeah. Young Slivitz, I just just to bring up where he fits in this because it's I think Terrence is really right. The the turn that was made was right around the time after Hilmslev, and it was interesting because I as I started diving into other people and uh, you know deeply invested in his writings or influenced by him or mention him, uh, we've got Umberto Eco, we've got Derrida, obviously Deleuze and Guattari. Like it, a lot of people were sort of drawn to him because one of the things he did is he really did a lot of work when it came to breaking apart basically the metaphysics of how signs and semiotics work and so it's whether or not he actually has in himself any good points or not i think is even besides the point of what i think is interesting is uh his efforts and how he broke down how semiotics work took it to such a point almost to Roger what Roger was saying that uh, it it shattered semiotics for a lot of people because it was almost uh, I don't know to use it to use to mix my philosophers it's almost too molecularly broken down uh, to where it, it starts to lose a lot of its powers and the hierarchy of how it privileges one sign over another uh, it's really an interesting system so uh, it's it's at least interesting. I, I I a lot of the stuff and the way he takes on a lot of stuff you can see it's like in a lot of you know so his smaller writers or thinkers he he influenced a lot of people. So it's it's just interesting well, timing. Well, the thing is that what, what's interesting about Helmslev is that he um, you know he has non-representability as kind of like part of his system with the purport because each one of those things are uh, an unarticulated mass, you know, the unarticulated mass of possible sounds versus the unarticulated mass of thought. And so this, this expression of sense, which is the body without organs, um, is, is, is kind of a combination of those two unarticulated masses. And then, and then flanking that on either side is, is uh, form and structure. Uh, I mean, form and substance that that actually gives articulation to those unarticulated masses. Could I ask a question? Yes. Could you say a little bit more about what the body of that organs is in your um, your diagram? What it does? So I'm I'm going off of what uh, is said on page 281 about the body without organs being two sided, and it seems that that. Um, the, what the body without organs is looked at this way is some kind of inner limit in which the, in which, which is the expression of sense um, that, so if you take the, the unarticulated uh, uh, expanse of, of sounds and the unarticulated expanse of thought, and you kind of combine them, that that's that's sense in the two the two senses of sense, which is uh, sensory and uh, meaning combined, and so that that uh, chiasm of uh, of 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 sense and meaning that's in the word sense, uh, which I think is the same in English and French, that 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 becomes that becomes the body without organs, and then and then then it's articulated at the macro level and articulated at the micro level. Mm -hmm. So for instance, in grammar and in phonetics, in terms of language, those are the two articulations of it in the macro and micro. So, so what I'm saying is that 
that this is kind of like a general theory of where these two regimes of the macro and micro come from in Deleuze? But he's thinking about the molar, not the macro, though. I said um, macro. I should have said molar. Yeah, because it gives like a, a spatial scalar perspective instead. Well, okay, so so basically, but this is uh, lines up with Simondon. I mean, that's the interesting thing about it. It lines up with Simondon, and the the difference between the trans individual and the pre individual. So the individual is in the middle. Yes, because it's always metastable. Yeah, so that's the metastable, and and so if you. It's kind of like if you see Simondon and uh, Hemslev together as kind of like talking about the same thing, then you get this structure. Ah. Um, I have a, follow, a following question to this. Um, um, through this uh, metastable um, aspect from Simondon, uh, could this be the basis of this uh, oscillation between the schizophrenic and the paranoiac uh, that is opposed in this diagram? Because that's one aspect in, in this uh, chapter that uh, puzzled me a little bit. Where does uh, this, this oscillation Uh, between the two poles come from? Uh, does it come from the body without organs or from the socius? Uh, it's a question I uh, asked a, um, a bit earlier in the live chat with some uh, quotes attached to it. Yeah, I put the paranoid and schizophrenic into the diagram. I think that, I think, I think what this says is that these two levels are operating simultaneously if you think of it grammar and phonetics go together and i mean they're separable from each other abstractly but when you're actually speaking they're completely fused with each other mm -hmm. <clears throat> but it's it's always the problem of models so for example in disability we put you know there's an ecology of relations between the person and the environment <laughs> And then we have the actions. And, you know, we, we, we try to represent this into uh, models. So the schema that we use, put on one side the individual, on the other side the environment, and then actions into a third box. And in the middle, we put a black box called interaction or, you know, the flux where everything happens. But the problem of this kind of representation is that in real life, All of this is connected and all the, the elements of each boxes are going through one another. So that's, that's the problem of the representation of processual um, philosophy or theory. Because it's, if we break it down, we, uh, we will reduce it to its representation instead of seeing it as an ongoing process. Hmm. Yeah, and as uh, Deleuze and Guattari uh, write, uh, these oscillations of unconscious, or in the words of Atro, uh, the image of all human contradictions and the contradiction in principle is uh, one of the major objects uh, of uh, their schizoanalysis. So I guess we don't uh, need to focus or we don't have to focus on these uh, uh, specific models. 
Yeah, but at the same, but at the same, but at the same time, you know, we need models to try to explain it to ourselves. But it, it, I'll I'll let Tim talk after that. But um, it's it's the same thing as the family. You know, in Freud, we process uh, reality through the uh, idea of the family. If I look at Deleuze and Guattari from a materialist perspective, I will see Deleuze and Guattari all's theory as a materialist uh, kind of thing. Somebody from an idealist uh, school of thought would do the opposite. So basically. It's always the problem of um, trying to create a template uh, from the outside. So when we are making uh, uh, a map, you know, as a as a conceptual uh, schema, we're reframing what's actually being said. So there's always like a I'm gonna say something bad in this time, but like a trend, like a transvestite of uh, of what's going on. So there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's, it's, it's always the risk of it. Sorry, Ken, I cut you. You can go. Oh, that's okay. Um, yeah, I forgot what I was going to say. Go ahead. I want to uh, jump in because I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say because when we talk about the, the, the two and having some kind of simultaneity or one happening before the other, and. Uh, basically uh, privileging one over the other at any given time. I'm brought back to uh, early parts of logic of sense where Deleuze uh, literally says that uh, everything is always infinitely divisible into past and future. Um, And uh, everything can be basically, everything is two countervailing bodies constantly sort of uh, uh, causing and in relations to each other and causes of each other. This is how this works. This is how these things go together. And at any given time, you can measure almost any level of either side. It's a matter of almost perspective between them. Um, The only thing that exists is the very moment of right now. Uh, Not far off from if I were to say that if, if by measuring a thing you've changed the outcome right now the way that things are is is what we're talking about and so if we're talking about that there is a and i know i said it simultaneity and people made the jokes yesterday but there is a simultaneity we're talking about when we say that the the paranoiac and the and the schizophrenic are uh in oscillation uh they use the term wave and particle a few times uh here and in previous chapters to discuss what kind of oscillation means that we're not not talking necessarily about one transferring into the other and transmitting, but that there is a, uh, at the same time of being a wave, it's a particle, it's measurable, it's everywhere, it's both, it's it's all of those things. And I'm, and I'm uh, sorry, go ahead, Roger. No, 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 I know, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with what you're saying. That's, uh, you know, that, that's the, the, I think it, that's the gymnastic of the thought that we need to do, you know, it's see things as intensities instead of categories. So, you know, we can measure the wave, we can measure the intensity um, instead of like just doing um, uh, an identification of the category that is at play. So basically, all the all, all the categories are being there, and you know they're just like different intensity in one situation. So it's a it's a different mindset to uh, approach reality in that manner. It's it's allowing the paradoxes to tell you what the paradoxes are actually saying, rather than just assuming there's a mathematical purity to it uh, by identifying any specific concrete opposing any other there's uh, oscillations there's waves there's this there's this fuzziness to things 
That's one of the things that has always drawn me to to lose, but it's it's coming, I think, clear a lot more here, as we're talking about, uh, you know, Kent's diagram, where the body without organs sits, how we have the oscillations between the paranoiac and the schizo, how we move things, how things are territorialized and deterritorialized, one hand deterritorializing the other as the other reterritorializes the other, and this sort of ongoing back and forth feels like a lot of this stuff. We, I just wanted to make sure we went over for those listening at home that there is a simultaneity to these things and that it's kind of always in process. Hmm. Um, one of the things I, I'd like to say is that the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, you know, what Deleuze and Guattari are trying to do and Deleuze by himself before that is come up with uh, models that indicate non-representability and I think, I, you know, my hypothesis here is that uh, Deleuze is using Helmstead to do that because Helmstead has this uh, aspect to his semiosis that's pointing toward these unarticulated masses. And so, and so those kinds of models that are representations that point toward the non-representable are a different class than normal representations. And and the creativity of Deleuze is to come up with those kinds of models. Are you? I I I I don't have much to add to that. Uh, any last notes or questions? We are coming upon the two-hour mark uh, for this section, and I want to uh, at least slowly head towards winding down. But we should dive into any more questions if anyone has any. As a note, uh, you should go over to the literature group and make sure that we read the entire Kaddish by Ginsburg uh, this week just by voting for it, yelling at Jack that we need to do it, setting fire to things, you know, the normal stuff. As one who uh, enjoys playing with the Inferno in ways that only Dante can comprehend, perhaps, um, just to be clear, the the vote for NetSuite's tests will begin Saturday. Um, this week on Saturday, we are locked into uh, Crap's last tape by Beckett. Uh, of course, of course. But go and vote for next week's because it's worth uh, reading the entire Kaddish. I think would be really amazing. It can be done. But any uh, last comments on this section? Anything we want to? Uh, discuss before we move on and head to uh, next week's talk. Well, one thing we didn't talk much about are the diagrams at the end of the... Oh, the drawings. That's right. I would love to discuss the drawings, the diagrams, um, which are their own thing. And I'm always fascinated endlessly with them ever since, I think, uh, my early readings of uh, Lacan... Uh, where he tried to diagram diagramize everything was my first real introduction to this. And I've always been fascinated with how people try to uh, uh, at least make some things understandable through diagrams. I've never been a fan of it myself, but I'm always interested. But for these, uh, I genuinely am having trouble understanding like, are they literally just trying to show us what they're writing in text there? Because they seem to mirror up. But what is the use of the the pyramid? Why? Let me ask that. Why is the first one a pyramid? Why, uh, why not, not a box? It's not a pyramid. It's uh, just a static view on uh, sideways on a pendulum. They are um, mentioning 
like the the tip of this pyramid is uh, the point where you're holding the it's pendulum and it's yeah and it's uh, circling around between the extreme points of schizophrenic and paranoid right why, why why is the tip of the pendulum dingling down with no explanation that's that's explained that's just above me. you've got that, the pendulum that was a joke goes, sorry <laughs> goes from paranoia to schizophrenia back and forth or you can see it as a process that goes through the um different um associate um the body of the earth the despotic body the body of capital and ultimately to the body the full body without organs and there you've got the paranoia and the schizophrenia on the same line um, because you get to the ultimate limit of the full body without organs and um, you bounce back onto the other thing and that's um that's the second diagram is the sort of um what happens when the first diagram goes wrong so in a sense if you follow the line in the middle the middle way um you don't you've got a sort of unified explanation instead of having two different poles you've got a a, a sort of third pole which is double in itself so to say back because this that is that solved solved my questions i think uh the first one is essentially let's uh let's say a sideways view uh, but the other one the the one below it is almost another dimension on it and what we're talking about is that middle piece uh as a thing as a subject as whatever is moving through body of Earth, the spotted body, body capital, all these things to the full body without organs, it bounces off. Now, when it bounces off that moment and is re-territorialized, uh, it is re-territorialized depending on where it lands, essentially. If we want to think about uh, the full body without organs is where the batter's at and the ball's coming at them. And if it's a first run, a second, a third, uh, if it lands within capital, it's be the way it's re-territorialized is Oedipal neuroses as familial entities. Uh, and if during the despotic body as paranoid psychoses, as despotic entities, and then finally body of the earth as perversions as territorial entities. Um, and if your batter is Superman, he bats it off into the cosmos. Right. Yeah. <laughs> How do we do that? That's, that's, the, that's what's missing. Ask Nietzsche. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool, that answered my question on those. Uh, their drawings are the same thing. Because that was gonna be my other question is I didn't understand the section one at all. They need a like a footnote here saying, hey, by the way, uh, whatever. They need a footnote. They need a fucking footnote. That is it, just before. Or in they, my French one is just before. Yes, yes they do. But they don't say the drawing that's coming up because I got confused and it's depressing. And you know what? I'm not going to keep saying it. It's just awful now that I realize what I was thinking. But this makes a lot more sense. Thank you for running me through that. Uh, any other things before we head off into the uh, night, day, wherever we happen to be? All right. Well, with that, um, I will say thank all of you for joining. Uh, Terrence, thank you for uh, coming along on this one. 
and uh, uh, please join any time. Uh, we will be continuing our reading next week, Monday, noon Pacific time, Los Angeles time. Uh, and we will be moving into section two, the molecular unconscious, which is uh, going to be getting a lot deeper into some of the things I was asking about earlier. Um, this is where we start. It's, it's, this is where we're going to start having a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited for next week's reading. Thank all of you for joining. Uh, any other further questions, don't hesitate to post them in the follow-up question section above. Uh, continue to make jokes, do what you need, and we'll see you guys all next week.